Let's turn again to Proverbs 23, Proverbs chapter 23, uh, looking at section from verse 19. Wine and the wise is our subject uh, this evening. Proverbs being an intensely practical book, which is concerned with uh, wise living, skillful living in God's service, uh, understandably has much to say about our use of alcohol, because clearly alcohol can have uh, an effect on our decision-making. Drunkenness robs us of clarity of thought or handle on reality. And so it's to be expected that it will come in for severe treatment. Drunkenness undermines wisdom. Uh, straight away we acknowledge that Christians uh, will have different positions in regard to the use of alcohol. There is an honourable Christian tradition of abstaining totally from alcohol. But there's a tradition that is equally honourable, which regards uh, alcohol as a gift from God to be used uh, responsibly. But all Christians should be united in declaring intoxication as sinful, and there should be little argument uh, in regard to that shared position. But we need to remind ourselves from time to time why it is that this particular sin, this sin of drunkenness, is so dangerous. It's particularly relevant, sadly, for us in our own culture. We live, do we not, in what has become known as the Buckfast Triangle. And we have in our own area, in our own constituency, the highest level of mortality from alcohol of any of the Westminster uh, constituencies. When the news came out of that statistic recently, Tom Clark, the local MP, gathered together uh, some of the local ministers uh, to see how we would address the issue of excessive drinking. It is a problem in our culture which has deep roots. Our Scottish culture, sadly, has made something of a celebration of drunkenness, not of, of, of wine and whiskey in itself, but of, of the drunkenness that may flow from that. Uh, you think of our bard Robbie Burns and what he had to say about the, the good effects of being drunk. Uh, you have uh, your Glasgow comics, for example, who have a lot to say about the, the joyful, uh, carefree aspects of being drunk, but very little to say about the social consequences, little to say about the battered uh, wife and family. And in many, many circles... A good night out simply means going out with your friends and becoming absolutely plastered. A hen night, a stag night, again, going to an unusual place, uh, getting up to all kinds of things, which inevit inevitably include drunkenness. There's a frightening growth in levels of drunkenness amongst teenagers and especially amongst girls. And Proverbs is aware of the snare that alcohol abuse can be amongst the young 
And it's not surprising that the council that we have on the abuse of alcohol comes in the form of a father-son chat. Now, it's similar to the chat that we had back in Proverbs 7, when the subject was that of sexual temptation. There's actually a connection between the two subjects. It's quite interesting to see how they, they link. And in chapter 23, uh, they are somewhat intertwined because the father has a warning against going to the, the wayward woman, uh, as well as warning him against the abuse of alcohol. Pagan worship often combined perverted sex, cult prostitution, with drunkenness in the worship of idols. In fact, you could think of drunkenness of being a violation of the command not to have idols. When you surrender your body and mind to an intoxicant, that in effect becomes a false god. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When the body is intoxicated by alcohol, God's place in his temple has been usurped. So it's not surprising to find sex and drink linked together. But equally, it's important for us to observe that sex and alcohol are not in themselves uh, evils. The Bible teaches that they may be enjoyed within the boundaries that God lays down and not outside these boundaries. Physical intimacy, the Bible teaches, is for marriage and for marriage alone. Wine is to be enjoyed within the limits of sobriety. Now, the last time uh, when the father was speaking to the son, we, we observed how important it was that this kind of teaching takes place in the home, or at least it's reinforced in the home. We take to heart the instruction and the example that we receive from our parents. And we have the, the importance of heeding the generation above us in these verses uh, here in Proverbs. Listen to your father who gave you life. Do not despise your mother when she's old. You know, every generation thinks that, you know, it is the exclusive guardian of wisdom. Uh, we're quick to dismiss uh, the counsel of our parents. And that shouldn't be the case within the family of God. We ought to have that respect for the godly counsel of our parents and our grandparents and acknowledge the, the life experience that leads them to take a position on such subjects. The father of the righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. May your father and mother be glad. May she who gave you birth rejoice. Right, well, let's look to Proverbs 23 to see uh, how its teaching comes to us. It's primarily a, a warning against drunkenness. There are other parts of Proverbs which speak more positively about wine. We'll look at them as well. But here it's a warning against the overindulgence in alcohol. And as you'd expect, it's given in a lively way. Uh, Proverbs 7 was given in the form of a story. There was a, a narrative aspect. Here we have a riddle. Solomon is asking a riddle. 
who has this, that, and the next. Uh, then uh, there's a vivid picture of the woes of the drunk. Uh, the woes of the drunk seen by an observer and then from the perspective of the drunk himself. The danger then of drunkenness. Who has woes? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Right? Solomon is getting us thinking. Who, who is it has all these things? Who am I speaking about that has all these things? We might think that it's a boxer that he's talking about. You know, this is Ricky Burns after his last unsuccessful attempt to, to uh, defend his title. But it's not. This is the drunk. This is the, the man who has gone over the score. And these are the consequences. But the, there is a connection, isn't there, with, with fighting. Because back in chapter 20, we had the, the picture of wine being a brawler. Wine is a mocker. Beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Aberdeen's Westburn Park has this lovely uh, stone water fountain. And uh, this verse, Proverbs 20, verse 1, is inscribed on one side of the fountain. Uh, it's actually a great kind of advertisement, isn't it? You know, most of the advertisements that we see in relation to alcohol extol the, the, uh, the giddy delights of going one over the score. Chapter 20 warns about the, the effect of alcohol leading to a, a belligerent attitude, uh, a dogmatic attitude that is the opposite of the teachable, humble, alert spirit that wisdom requires. Verse 30 describes uh, the person. This is the answer. Uh, Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Uh, Okay, lingering over wine, the the idea is of someone who uh, is captivated here. He may think he's a connoisseur, but he's actually entranced. And in in the light of what's said later on about the snake, it's almost like uh, he is entranced by the cobra. And the cobra uh, has him mesmerized, but the cobra is going to strike. The backlash that uh, the drunkard receives uh, is given in verse 29 from the point of view of the observer. And then verse 33 to the end, we have the, the hallucinations, the, the staggering uh, imagination of the drunk himself. Okay, the drunk has woe and sorrow. He has woe and sorrow. His joy is short-lived. Inevitably, there comes the morning after. There's the hangover. There are the consequences to be faced from those That he's offended when he spoke stupid words, things that he has cause to regret, when his self-control was lost. There are several instances in the Bible of occasions when self-control was abandoned and there were seriously negative consequences uh, arising from uh, an alcohol-fueled atmosphere. Think of the the banquet that King Herod threw. And when the wine was was flowing, uh, there comes this request. And Herod, foolishly having promised uh, to give whatever was asked, ends up with the head of John the Baptist delivered on a platter. 
Alcohol fuels strife. Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? The damage to physical health is staggering. A huge proportion of domestic violence in Scotland today caused by drunkenness. We all know this. This is not new. Wives who live in constant fear uh, at the approach of a husband or partner who goes out drinking, comes back uh, with a violent temper. 30 people on average are killed on Scottish roads every year as a result of drunk driving. One in nine of the fatalities on the roads caused directly by alcohol. Who has complaints? The drunks continually complaining, complaining against the family because they're fed up by his behavior, complaining against his employers who've lost their patience with his lack of discipline. Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It's an enormous health toll caused by alcoholism. Cardiovascular disease, peptic ulcers, nutritional deficiencies, dementia, cirrhosis of the liver, pancreatitis, epilepsy, kidney disorders. The drinker's got the woe of poverty. Excessive drinking means that he never completes uh, his job or school or home responsibilities. He's despised by others. He, he lacks some of the, the social graces because of his alcoholism, uh, his impaired memory. Alcoholics are said to struggle sometimes to uh, perceive facial emotions. So he's a pathetic figure to the observer. He's a terror to himself. Verses 33 to 35 describe a man uh, who has an imagination which has run amok. His imagination is now as uncontrollable as his legs have become. He's pictured as being on the, the top of the mast in a ship that is in a sea with a heavy roll in it. And, and he is lurching around and he's, he's lost his balance and uh, inevitably he's going to be sick. He boasts for a while. He didn't feel the, the beatings that he received when he was under the influence. But in the end, he's a pathetic figure. Uh, he's become an alcoholic. Uh, his waking thought is, when can I get my next drink? Enslaved in alcoholism. So there is this very powerful warning uh, in this part of Proverbs and in other parts of Proverbs against the abuse of alcohol. But our responsibility is always to, to be under the authority of the Bible and to go no further than the Bible teaches. And the Bible nowhere teaches that alcohol uh, in itself is evil. And there are a number of places uh, within Proverbs where, where wine is spoken of more positively. Uh, Proverbs 3 verse 9 uh, we were looking at a number of sections in Proverbs 3 at the beginning of our studies in Proverbs. And in Proverbs 3, where we honour God with our substance, 
Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, verse 9. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So new wine is there seen as a, as a reward from the Lord for those who honor him. Proverbs chapter 9, one of those parts of the book where wisdom is personified. Uh, wisdom is seen as giving her invitation. She's beckoning uh, to the wayward, to the simple, to come and to gain wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. So it would be unthinkable, really, to use wine as a symbol in uh, a situation like that if wine itself was seen as, as evil. Chapter 31, we read that earlier. It's King Lemuel's mother. Uh, there's a debate as to who King Lemuel was. Lemuel was not uh, any king of Israel or Judah. Some think it may be a name for Solomon himself. His mother giving him advice. Uh, includes a warning against craving after wine because his position as a king is to be clear-headed, to have wise judgments, and overindulgence in wine will lead to his judgment being impaired. But at the end, there is this exhortation, which admittedly is a little difficult, uh, but it seems to uh, exhort him to give in compassion to those who are in anguish, who are perishing, to give beer and wine to them uh, as a means of consolation. Jeremiah 16, verse 7, describes the, the cup of consolation, and that is maybe what is intended there. When you look at other parts of the Bible, you have wine, the cup of wine, in a negative way, used to speak of the judgment of God. Wine, a cup of wine which, which foams to the brim, which God passes to, uh, to the one who is to come under his judgment. Whether that's his people, uh, Judah, are given the cup of judgment. When Jesus approaches uh, crucifixion, when he goes into Gethsemane, he speaks of the coming judgment upon himself as this cup that is to be drunk. But it's frequently spoken of positively. It's a picture of joy. We were singing Psalm 4 uh, at the beginning. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Psalm 104, verse 15. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. Wine is often used as a symbol of the kingdom of God and the, the blessings that the kingdom uh, entails. Come, all you are who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And when Jesus begins his ministry, his first miracle sign is the turning of water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Uh, a miracle that speaks of the inexhaustible grace of God. Jesus will speak in Luke 5 of the kingdom 
being new wine, which requires new wineskins. And he will institute the Lord's Supper using wine and bread as a memorial to his own sacrifice. Joel, uh, prophesying the, the coming of the kingdom in its fullness, uh, uses wine as a, as a figure of speech for the blessedness of the kingdom. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. So you have these different uh, perspectives on on wine in the scriptures. And as we said at the beginning, uh, as we seek to come under the authority of scripture, that means that we cannot go beyond scripture. uh, And therefore we cannot lay down a general rule and impose it upon God's people that they must abstain and adopt a completely teetotal position. As we say this, an honourable option for some. It was in the scriptures. There were the Nazarites who took a vow, which meant that they abstained from uh, the use of wine. But it cannot be laid down as a rule for all. And where there's no prohibition on a matter like this, the the church must encourage Christians to exercise liberty responsibly and sensitively. And when Paul is instructing the the new churches in the New Testament, uh, these kind of issues of conscience are very often to the fore. There's the, the question, not so much about wine, but about Things like meat which had been bought in the marketplace and had obviously been offered to idols before, or which could have been offered to idols before, there was no certainty. And some had a, what they called a strong conscience and were willing to eat that kind of meat. And others, who were termed as having a weaker conscience, were sensitive and didn't. And Paul's advice is that those who have the stronger conscience are to care for those who have scruples. They're not to trample roughshod over the position of those who have a conscientious position and who are holding back from indulging in that meat. And it's the same in our attitudes as Christian brothers and sisters towards alcohol. Those who have a liberty to partake are bound by the law of love. Their freedom should not be a freedom to cause anyone else to stumble. For example, if there is the possibility of someone being in a company who has a weakness for alcohol, who will be set off by a bad example, every Christian should have the love and courage to take that into account and to act accordingly. We are our brother's keeper. And anyone who feels at liberty to partake of a gift of God in this way needs to take seriously the the dangers that Proverbs speaks of and to take to heart the advice that we have in the book of Proverbs that we might avoid sin in this area. And there is some practical advice uh, in the book. Some of it very familiar, 
when we hearken back to Proverbs 7 and the advice that Solomon gives as to not going near sexual temptation. First of all, Proverbs will tell us to keep clear of people who habitually overindulge. Choose your company. Those who walk with the wise grow wise. Keep your heart on the right path. Do not join with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. Interesting though, isn't it? Seeing the the linking of the gluttony with uh, overindulging in wine. Bad company corrupts behavior, Paul warns. It's foolish to be moving in circles where people are overindulging in alcohol. It might seem easy at first to be in such company and to set yourself apart, but eventually such practices rub off and Proverbs commends us to stick to a right path and with right people. Secondly, and related to that, there is advice to have, a clearly, to have clearly defined boundaries. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Now, this is a, a rather hard expression, but I think what it may possibly mean is that th- there are times when wine, when alcohol, is more attractive to us than others. There are times when the atmosphere exerts a certain pressure upon us. There are times when it is difficult to say no. There are times when we can be carried away. Therefore, we must think well in advance. We must know what our boundary will be. Uh, Remember the quotation uh, that we had from Spurgeon the last time, uh, which we used in relation to keeping well clear of sexual temptation. Spurgeon uh, said once, a heedless person never lived a holy life. Therefore, we need to uh, avoid being heedless. Uh, We need to be wise. We need to be thoughtful. We need to have thought out what our position is, where our boundary line will be. It is too late to try and think out these things when you're in the thick of it. Even if a Christian is not teetotal, his or her moderation should be well known to all of his or her friends. Let your moderation be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Thirdly, Make sure that you do not look to alcohol for your joy. (coughs) Treasure the things that give lasting pleasure. We all know that those who get drunk get poor. Therefore, it's interesting that we have a commendation here to to buy that which will not impoverish us. Buy the truth, Uh, Solomon advises his son. Buy the truth and do not sell it. It's verse 23. 
In the New Testament, there, there's a, a parallel idea not to do something, but do something else. Uh, the New Testament doesn't simply say, uh, don't get drunk. It advises us to, to fill up uh, that vacuum, make sure that we find our joy somewhere else. Um, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't end up singing because you're drunk. Sing because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making music in your heart to the Lord. That's the real antidote. This is the safeguard, isn't it? Jesus is so fully our joy that we would not dream of looking for our joy from anything else. He alone is our source of joy. Intoxication is an extremely serious matter. People excuse themselves in all kinds of ways. I've known people who, who would binge uh, every weekend and who would uh, flatly deny that they had an alcohol problem. With all of sin, it is never a matter of how often or regularly we sin. When we do something which is contrary to the word of God, to the law of God, we have broken the commandment. You don't need to be a serial adulterer to have broken the seventh commandment. Telling one lie breaks the ninth commandment. Letting drink intoxicate you, brings you into some very uh, serious company. First Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's serious, serious business. But the word of hope Continues, And that is what some of you were. Some of you, he says, were drunks. Some of you uh, know what it is to be singing for all the wrong reasons. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The stain of every sin, the stain of the sin of drunkenness, is taken away by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. In Gethsemane, Jesus bows to the Father's will and consents to take the cup of wrath. He takes it in effect from all his people and he drinks it to the very dregs on the cross of Calvary. Psalm 75 verses Verse 8 speaks of that cup that Jesus took. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Jesus drank that cup. The cup that sinful people like you and like me should have drunk. For all of the sins that are mentioned in the word, the sin of gluttony, the sin of being a, a swindler, sin of being a, a fornicator, a busybody, a drunk, 
that cup was drunk by Jesus. He endured the wrath of God that we might know his love. Mark in his gospel tells us that when Jesus was taken to the Mount of Crucifixion and before they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers offered him wine mixed with myrrh. And our Lord Jesus refused it. It would have been a sedative. I think it was offered in compassion. But Jesus went to that cross absolutely determined that he would pay the full price. That he would be alert to the very end. That he would be conscious throughout as he paid for our sin. As he drank that cup of wrath. And Jesus hung there under that Middle Eastern sun, his throat parched like paper. And near the end, he's offered wine again. Jesus takes the wine and slakes his thirst that he might cry out that cry of triumph at the end. It is finished. He opens up heaven's gates for his people. And he has left us with a cup of wine that we use to remember his death. The Lord's Supper, when we do this in remembrance of him. And it points us forward to another supper, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, when he was with his disciples at that last supper, said that he would not taste of the fruit of the vine again until he tasted it in the kingdom. Friends, there's that glorious day coming when we will sit with Jesus, when we will have all our joy, all our delight in him, and there will be no more folly. There will be no intoxication. There will be the new wine of the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. And that will be our thrill and our joy and our song. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its wisdom. Thank you for its warnings. Thank you for its encouragements. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has taken cup of judgment has taken all our sorrows all our grief that he has handed to us instead a cup of blessing Lord grant that we will live as wise people we will be conscious of our witness in a world which is broken which is filled with folly enable us Lord to care for one another to have sensitivity and love towards one another, to honour one another, to encourage each other in the choices that we make to honour Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.